and my introduction has to do possibly with what you have on your arm. If you're maybe of the older generation like me, you have a real watch on your arm. If you're younger, you've got it on your phone, and you may never, ever uh, buy a watch, but my introduction this morning has to do with, with watches. Uh, and they're kind of disappearing today. But uh, here's some history for you that I love trivia. You may not, so if you don't, you can sleep during this part. Uh, in 1960, the Swiss watch manufacturers dominated the world of watchmaking. Uh, they produced over 90% of the watches in the world. Uh, 1,600 watchmaker companies in Switzerland uh, made 40 million watches a year. That's a lot of watches that go on people's arms. They were dominant, they were powerful, they had a very good product, uh, the mechanical watch, um, and no one ever thought anyone would challenge that, and so that's why no one paid attention at a, little, at a trade show in the late 60s when a company called Seiko Ashton sat there with a quartz watch that operated on a different principle and different thing. It wasn't on springs and gears, but it was electrical and operated on quartz. Uh, the Swiss ignored this, thinking no one will, we've got the best product, nobody's going to bother us, and that was too much to their chagrin. They should have paid more attention, because by 1983, sales of Swiss watches had fallen from 40 million to 10 million. From 40 million to 10 million. 1,000 Swiss watchmakers were gone out of business uh, at that time. In Switzerland, this was known as the quartz crisis. The Swiss watch industry was saved. Uh, later on, when they marketed their own quartz watch, which you may have worn, known as a Swatch. If you remember the Swatch when it came out, it was a cheap watch, but it saved the whole industry there uh, on that. <coughs> it was inexpensive but efficient. The quartz me mechanism brought what's known as a paradigm shift to watchmaking, a paradigm shift. That's the key word for they. The key word for this psalm is a paradigm shift in uh, this psalm. A paradigm shift is a complete or almost complete change of a belief system, a framework, or the way things are done. In history, people used to think the world is flat. Then everything changed when they discovered it wasn't. The world was round. Uh, the, they used to think that the, the sun revolved around the earth. Well, it didn't. They found that out. It was a paradigm shift in science and thinking. Technology today, I already mentioned the watch, but remember those big boxes that used to sit in your living room? Took up a lot of space. It's called a, a regular, a cathode ray television set. Do you remember those? There may be one probably gathering dust somewhere. Uh, but interesting, the technology for the flat, flat screen TV uh, was invented in 1964, University of Illinois, where you work most of the time, uh, in 1964. But it wasn't until 1997, uh, Panasonic introduced the first flat screen and affordable and marketable television set. Uh, by 2002, you couldn't find a cathode ray television set. And we had people used to call us, say, hey, I got this brand new TV, you want it? No, I mean, they were sitting on the curb, you know, the, on the verge, being thrown away. That was a paradigm shift in that everything changed. In this psalm, the psalmist comes before us this morning. Um, he's in a quandary about why evil people prosper. Why, why do they get ahead? Why does it look like God's not doing anything? Why does it look like God's not here? What's going on? And here I am struggling in, in that. And as you look through the psalm, there's three parts as, as uh, Lee read it. There's the first part is the struggle. And then around in verse 13 and through 18, there's a paradigm, the shift in his thinking. And then he comes out of that. And that's the way we'll look at this uh, this morning, uh, this morning about 
this shift. So this is a psalm. It tells us, the writer tells us, that uh, it's a psalm of Asaph. Of Asaph. Who was Asaph? Asaph was the Andy Shadburn of Jerusalem at that time. Uh, he had been appointed by David. He was a Levite. He had been appointed by David. He was a songwriter. His job was to take David's psalms and put them to music and also to write his own psalms, and many of which are recorded in uh, this book. So that was his job. So the, the idea of, of a worship leader, musical worship leader, it's, it's been around. We're just repeating the same things on that. But he was in there, and he's struggling, though. Here's a man who worships at the temple of God. He works in the temple of God. And yet he's struggling with the world and the way it is around him, some things he can't understand. Uh, your pastor struggles with things he can't understand, even as preachers and the people that work in the religious business. We struggle with things. And Asaph brings some real struggles out here in, in his life. Uh, so what's his struggle? He begins, he says in verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure of heart. He begins with a positive statement. I know this, you know, I know that God is good. And we do that. We know that God's a good God. We've studied him. He's blessed us in our lives. He's brought us through tough times. We know that God is good. And to those who follow him, we know he's good. And then he goes, on, but, but God, I looked around and here's what I saw. Uh, I looked around on that. Uh, and I was, he says, and my steps nearly slipped for I was envious and arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He looks around him and he becomes envious and arrogant of the wicked and their, and their prosperity. He becomes jealous of them. And the great thing here is that he admits it. He admits it. He says, I serve the Lord, but God, I'm struggling. I'm almost slipping because I look around. I, I'm envious and arrogant of the wicked. And we need to learn that it's okay to admit that we're envious and arrogant of those who maybe prosper around us or the wicked who get away with it, as he talks about. But he's, he's going on, he's saying, I really, I wanted what they had. When we're envious, when, we're, when we're, we're jealous, when we covet things, what we're saying is, God, I'm really just not happy with what you've given me. I'm not happy with the way you're providing for me, the way things are going in my life. I'm envious of them because you should be blessing them. I'm not happy with this. I want more. I want more than you've given me. I want more than what you've given me. I want what they have. That's his problem. That's his problem. He's struggling with that and to, to understand. That's the practical side uh, of this. Uh, I deserve more. And what did he see that made him jealous? What brought him to this point? Well, he looked at people who he said, Lord, these people don't follow you, but look at them. They prosper. They enjoy good health. Um, they swelled through fatness. They, they look good. They're sleek. That's actually a description of a sleek and a powerful cow that he's using there. But he says they're, they're, they're sleek and they're, and they're healthy and they're full and, and, and they don't struggle. He says they're prideful. They've got so much that they just, pride, they just strut around. They're prideful and arrogant in what they say. They don't care what they say. Uh, they do whatever they want against the Lord. They flaunt their evil actions. And nothing happens to them. And nothing happens. And we look around today and don't we see the same thing? We have the same questions. Lord, how does that person get away with that? How do they get around? I'm, I'm trying to do stuff and, and they're getting away with it. Why is that? Where are you, Lord, in that? Nothing happens. God's people wonder, does God notice? Is he even there? In verse 10, 
God even there? Does he even notice that the, the people just say, well, that must be the way it is because does, does God even know? Does he care uh, in the world? Why do they get ahead and do evil and you do nothing about it? God, is it outside your knowledge? Don't you even care uh, for this? For this? I've said those things. <laughs> Maybe you haven't. I've said those things. God, don't you care? Where are you? What's going on? Why don't you care? My good friend over here is struggling and suffering, and this other person, nothing going on with them. Why? Why? It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. So in verse 13, we see the root of, of his struggle. Um, you see, it's not just that the evil prosper. It's that it, it, it bothers him. It, that's an intellectual problem. But it's that he, he personally wonders about it in his life. In vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. I'm struggling. These people are not. As Christians today, we go, we're believers, and we try to, we have to live righteous lives. And we struggle with things. We struggle against sin, and nobody else seems to worry about it. It's kind of like if you buy a pair of shoes or some clothes and things, you get that little packet of silicone that absorbs moisture in it, the little packet that you pick out and throw away. And, um, but you look at it, it has, big, it has written on there, do not eat. Do not eat this. You know, do not eat. And I, you know, as you look at it, you think, well, I never would have thought to eat it until it said, don't eat it. So now I wonder what it tastes like <laughs> on that. But as Christians, we're confronted with a world where God says, don't do this. Don't do that. And so we struggle to live righteous lives. We struggle that. And in a sense, we, we suffer in that. In a world where everybody else just seems to be doing what they want to do. But we're restricted. We, we can't cheat on our taxes. Other people can. They do it all the time. They get away with it. But as Christians, we're called to be righteous. We're called to be honest in work. You're called to write an honest contract and to do a good day's work for your employer and to be a good employer to your employees, whereas other people get away with not doing that. And so as Christians, in a sense, we struggle and we suffer in that because we have to be righteous. And Asaph, he's envious and he worries and he says, I almost slipped. I almost slipped and fell in that because I'm wondering, is it? Is it just vanity? Is it in vain that I keep myself pure? That's his question. That's our question uh, in the world uh, today uh, on that. I think a great example of that would be in 2008, the Wall Street crash. Uh, the Wall Street crash. Now, not all stockbrokers are, are evil and corrupt, but if you think back about what happened, uh, hundreds of people sold millions of dollars worth of worthless bonds, worthless mortgage bonds, and they knew it all around the world to people, uh, and they sold it, and then the stock market crashed, and they, they made millions of dollars on those bonds. Go watch the movie Moneyball, read the book, it's even better. Uh, not Moneyball, I'm sorry, uh, The Big Short, Moneyball's good too, but The Big Short, written by the same author. Uh, and, and they made millions, and then when the stock market crashed, they made even more millions, because they figured out how to make money off that, off the U.S. government. And you know how many people went to jail? One. And he was just an unlucky soul who had confessed early and, and shouldn't have, if he hadn't, if he had waited, he wouldn't have gone there. One big stockbroker went to jail. Everybody else, nobody went to jail. They made money. It just wasn't fair. My son, Wilson, graduated in landscape architecture in 2008. Jobs were gone. Today he's a Sparky. He's a journeyman Sparky trying to, to, to get it out that way. You know, it crushed him. It hurt him. It just wasn't fair of that. So that's his dilemma. The world's not fair. It's not right. And then he solves it. 
And this is where the paradigm shift takes place. He keeps silent. He ponders it. He seeks to understand it. He struggles. He says it, is wearis- it was wearisome task for me to struggle with this. He really wrestled with God about this. He really thought about God, questioning him. And so this teaches us that, you know, it's okay to wrestle with God. It's okay to say, Lord, I don't get this. I don't understand this. I don't know what's going on. And he didn't just look for an instant answer. See, that's what we do today. We look for instant answers. Just show me this verse real quick or or hand me a book or whatever. Just show me a quick answer. But he says he wrestled with it. It was wearisome as he went before the Lord with it um, to do that. And I question, do you wrestle with things before the Lord? Do you struggle with things before the Lord? Do you come before him and say, Lord, I just don't understand? It's okay to do that because that's how we grow as Christians as we struggle and as we think on that. Sometimes the answer isn't instantly. But he says that it seemed wearisome to task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discovered their end. God revealed himself to him. He, in a sense, he worshiped God. When I came into God's presence, when I really saw who God is, I realized I'm just looking at them and I'm missing God over here. I'm missing God over here. God became the center of his vision and his thoughts, and he finally understood it. And that's what worship does for us. That's why we need to be here every Sunday, worshiping with God's people, because you may have had a horrible week last week, and you need to refocus this week. You need to be encouraged. You need to be strengthened by the Lord's table. Maybe you've got a tough week coming up in that. But God says, come here and worship and be focused on me and see that, you know what, I'm God, and I'm really in control, and I know what I'm doing, and I know what I'm doing. That's what we need to come together. We need to worship him and to be with each other. Uh, worship resets our vision on that. It puts God at the center. The cares and troubles of this world are still there, but then we realize God's in control. God's in his temple. God is absolutely in control. And you know what? There's an eternity. That's what it does for him. His paradigm shift is that he shifts off the present. He sees God and he sees now he has an eternal perspective on the world and on the evil in the world. It occurs in that. He discerns at their end. He he sees all these people in light of eternity of that. You know, they're not as secure as I thought they were. They slip and fall in a moment. And we see that in the world today, how people crash down quickly. They look so great, but their world gets pulled out from them in a moment of that. He sees that this is not all there is, that there's a judgment coming. There's an eternity of that. And God will be just. God, God will be righteous. He will bring judgment. He will sit things, set things right. You may have been horribly wronged in your life. And... There's some here who have been. And you wonder, where was God? Why didn't God do anything? Why hasn't God done anything? What's going on? We need to understand, but in light of eternity, we know that God will come again. The Lord will come again, and he will set things right. Justice will be done. He will bring that into the world. So he discerned it therein. And then he goes on in verse 21, 22. He says, he realizes, you know, Lord, when I was jealous and bitter, he admits it, to them, I was doubting your goodness towards me, and that was the real problem. He was doubting God's goodness towards him, and that's where we get. When things are tough, I go, Lord, are you, are you still looking out for me? 
Have you still got my best in mind? Are you struggling? Are you with that? That's what we struggle with uh, on that. Um, but he says, I was jealous and bitter. I doubted. I didn't understand. And he admits, he says, you know, I was just like an animal before you, Lord. I, I didn't get it. And, and that's right, because we're, you know, it's Christianity is, is so strange. We're, we're finite creatures. We have limited knowledge of, of everything. And yet we're trying to understand an infinite God and how he works and how he does things. And we can't get, always get it all. And that's why we trust that he is who he says he is. And he does love and he does care for us. And as we look at the world, it's kind of like this. If, uh, if, uh, friends of ours have a big tapestry on their wall. It's about that big. Uh, and, and so, but if you flip the tapestry, oh, have you ever done it? Any of you ever did needlepoint and things like that? Uh, in, in that, if, if you look at the back, what do you see? You see strings going everywhere, a vague outline of what it is. It doesn't really make sense because that's the back. Uh, and, and in life, that's what we see. But what does God see? God sees the front. He knows your life. He knows what's going to happen. He knows everything coming out. And sometimes it doesn't make sense to us. It's raggedy ends of thread here and there. But from God's perspective, he knows what he's doing, and that's what we trust in him because we, we just see the back of it. We don't know. We don't know everything, and that's why we trust in that. You know, we're Asaph here. He's disturbed by all the injustice of the world and trouble, but now he sees what? He sees that God really is in control. God's put all those little threads through there, and he knows what he's doing. So he moves from dissatisfaction to satisfaction. He's seen the world in light of eternity. He's seen God's ways. Has produced a paradigm shift in his thinking and also in his behavior. Before, God was not enough. And then at the close of the psalm, he says, God is everything I need. Before, he said, I need more, God. You're not giving me enough. And now that he's seen God for who he is and he's developed an eternal perspective, saying, Lord, you're all I need. You're all I need in that. Uh, in that. You know, he says, even though I'm so dumb at times, Lord, you hold me in your right hand. Verse 23, nevertheless, in spite of the fact that I'm a stupid, ignorant animal, and we all are, you hold me. You've got me. And even in our ignorance, even in our, in our falling away, even in our struggles, even in our envy, even in our jealousy, even in our slipping and falling uh, of that, even in our wondering, God holds us because we're his forever, and he'll never let us go. And he goes on, he says, now I desire what? Before I desired everything they had. Now I desire nothing but you, because Lord, I see that you're my all. I see that you're all. It's a whole perspective change for him. They're going to perish, but I'm not going to worry about them. All I want to do is to be near to you. What about you this morning? And what about me? Uh, what about us? This, this is us, and we'll go through this psalm over and over again in our lives. Uh, can you say this, God, you're all I need? Because the it's the same. You remember in the Garden? In the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis chapter 3, Satan came to them and said what? To Adam and Eve. God, you're holding back. God's holding back on you. God's holding back on you. He's given this beautiful garden with all this stuff, but you know what? Those two trees, that tree, he's holding back. He knows that there's more for you out there 
And so they sinned, and they did what? They lost joy, they lost peace, they lost love, they lost hope. Uh, and, and it all fell apart as they went towards that sin. Because sin never delivers what it promises. As we look at what everybody else has, we need to understand, boy, it looks good. But it doesn't really deliver. It'll never deliver in that. Real joy is not out there. Real joy is found in the Christian life. Though the Christian life is tough because we live in a fallen world. We live in the already and the not yet. And it is tough. It's hard to be a Christian. It's hard to live for the Lord. It is difficult. But God says, in that you find me. And I'm all you need on that. One more illustration, then we're done. You know, when the Lord brought, um, well, in the Garden of Eden, back to that, he said, I'm all you need. And they wanted more. And then think, go ahead of a few years, when God delivers his people out of Egypt. He delivers them from slavery and he saves them, which is all an illustration of, of God's salvation for us, an actual event, but an illustration. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. And he says, there are all these things you can do, but here's ten things. I just want you to, ten little things, just don't go. And he gives it to them. And the preamble of it, he says, I am the Lord God of Israel who brought you out of Egypt, who delivered you. You shall have, shall have no other gods before me. What he's saying there is, I delivered you, I saved you, and I'm all you need. You don't need any other gods. I'm all you need. The, the, preamp, the, the first of the Ten Commandments, it's a lover talking to his bride and saying, I'm all you need. I love you, and I'm all you need, and I will be your all forever and ever. And that's what we do as illustrated in marriage. And that's what God says to us. I'm all you need. I love you. I'm a jealous lover. And I'm all you need. And that's what he says to us this morning. Do you know that? Do you experience that with the Lord? Maybe you need to get before him. Wrestle with him. Struggle with him in that. Because he will reveal himself to you. Because he is the jealous lover who pursues you who desires to be your all and to provide you with everything you need. When he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, we look at that and go, oh, I don't do that. I'm such a bad Christian. God says, no, 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 you're getting it all backwards. What I'm trying to tell you is love him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind because that's all you need. You don't need to love anyone else. I'm all you need. And as we get to know him, he reveals himself to us more and more. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we confess that we, like Asaph, struggle from time to time in the world with, with the prosperity of the wicked, with injustice, with the way things are. We wonder, are you really in control? But we know, O oh Lord, that you are. That you are sovereign, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And you are sovereign and controlling this world and you will come again to take us into all eternity. But for right now, you promise that you are our God, that each of us, older, young, you hold us by your strong right hand, and you will not let us slip as the evil do, but you will provide everything we need. Teach us this, O oh Lord, for we struggle, for we are like beasts before you. Teach us, and thank you that we have your Holy Spirit and your word to guide us. In Jesus' name, amen.